not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my newly released poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. I tell my story there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today we have a guest who is here to share her story with us. Her name is Maria. Hi, Maria. Nice to meet you. Hi, Jean. It's so great to be here. I'm excited. Well, thank you so much for taking some time today to share your story and to shine a light of hope and strength for others that are listening. And you are coming, we're, we're in opposite corners of our country. So I'm in, in Canada where I was just saying it's cool and rainy and not quite summer yet. And you're in a warmer part of the U.S. And yet here we are just chatting like neighbors. <laughs> I'm in Dallas, Texas, where we are in full-blown summer mode right now. It is hot. It is hot, where you run from the AC in the car to the AC in the house. And we sure do. Exactly. Okay, well, let's get to know you, Maria. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Well, my name is Maria, and I'm 52 years old. My sobriety date is January 18th, 2014. I I was born and raised in Michigan, and I've been here in Dallas for, oh my gosh, like 30 years now. So although I, I've lived here most of my life, I'm still a Michigan girl at heart, and that's where a lot of my story takes place. I never wanted to call myself an alcoholic. That was such an ugly word. And I never, ever thought that it would apply to me. I didn't start drinking alcoholically until my forties. I was a social drinker up until that point. I would, you know, sometimes go out and party with, with friends or my husband, or, you know, when we, that we used to have a boat and it was, you know, a weekend kind of thing, but it never, was a problem until I was in my 40s. And things started to get bad when I was drinking a glass of wine at dinner time, which would then kind of move on to um, a drink later in the evening. Before I knew it, I had had a whole bottle of wine. And all of this kind of crept up on me, and I was surprised. And even though I had had quite a number of years where I considered myself that social drinker, alcoholism seemed to really sneak up on me very quickly. And I saw the progressiveness of the disease. And I was having issues at home um, where my, my family was telling me that I had an issue, but they were still pretty, pretty gentle and kind about it. 
um, until things just got out of hand and I was, I was being really sneaky where I had never been a sneaky person before. And I was hiding bottles in my closet and my husband was finding them. And my daughter, who at the time was a young teenager, was finding them too. And um, I just started to, be, to become somebody that I didn't recognize. I felt like I had gone from this really happy-go-lucky very energetic and confident person to being sucked into alcoholism. And it was really scary. Um, yet I didn't want to admit that I had a problem. In fact, the more that my family started to learn about my drinking, the more I was in denial and the more I lied. And again, I was becoming this person again that I didn't even know. And the more that they got bolder and angrier and more frustrated with me, they started calling me outright an alcoholic. And just like an alcoholic, that would only make me go out and drink more. So I was drinking at them and wanting to to prove that I wasn't an alcoholic by drinking more, which totally doesn't make any sense to me now, but that is what the disease does. It, it makes you become somebody that you are not. Um, eventually, I went to IOP, which is intensive outpatient, um, for some help. And... And again, I just, I was drinking right through it. I was going to these classes or sessions or counseling, I guess it was, um, several times a week. And I was also going to AA meetings and especially women's meetings. And, and I would leave those meetings and I would think, wow, those women are so great. I love them. I want to be like them. And before I knew it, I was driving up to the 7-Eleven to buy alcohol. Even after having just attended a great meeting where I knew that the women that I was meeting were happy, joyous, and free, and I wasn't. And I didn't know how to get back to that Maria that I used to be. I went to IOP for a couple of months. Um, my family was getting more and more fed up with me, and at some point they had even come up with a contract for me to sign that said if I drank again, that I would go to treatment. And I signed that contract and I was so angry that once again, that anger stirred inside of me and I didn't know how to deal with those feelings. So I went out and I drank. And this time they meant business and they my husband literally said, pack your bags. You're going to treatment right now. And you have to know, my husband and I have been married for 28 years. He is the most kind and loving and gentle human being on this planet. And it takes a lot to get him stirred up and angry. So by the time that I knew that he had got me in the car and was driving me to treatment, um, I knew I was... I was in trouble and our marriage was in trouble. 
Um, what I forgot to tell you was that a lot of my drinking also, like I mentioned before, took place in Michigan. The years before we had this beautiful little cottage in, on a lake and the kids and I would go up there for the whole summer and my husband would stay back here in Dallas and work and he would fly in on weekends to join us. But the alcohol really grabbed hold of me there because I was alone and I was kind of in an isolated rural community. Um, the weekends were great fun. We had lots of friends all over the lake and they were heavy drinkers and I saw that they were heavy drinkers. So I try to keep up with them. And truthfully, that's really where my alcoholism started was just feeling like everyone else is drinking like this. I guess this is what I should do too. So I did. Um, but then the weekends would end and everybody would go home and I would be left there by myself with three kids and um, no way to fill the time. And so the alcohol just took over. Um, after I went to treatment, which I very lovingly call Camp Fruit Loop because it was such a such an unusually different place than I had ever been to. Um, I went there, but I was full of anger and resentment at having to go in the first place. So I never, I found sobriety for those 28 days, but I remember driving home. I remember my husband coming to pick me up and to bring me home and driving in the car and suddenly the billboards all seemed like they were neon and they were blazing at me with happy hours and margarita nights and the, the, the there were billboards for liquor stores and it just seemed like it was two inches from my face and it stirred up all of these ugly feelings again. And I, I got home and even though I struggled and I begged and pleaded God to keep me sober, I was right back to where I was in about three weeks. And it, this went on for another six months or so. And again, I was given the ultimatum that you either go to treatment or, um, you know, we're going to have to make some other arrangements for our family because I wasn't, I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't taking care of my children. I wasn't taking care of my husband. Um, but the funny thing was, is that I was still so much of a closet drinker. My friends and most of my family did not know what was happening. We were hiding it. And I, the more I hit it, you know, I guess it's like they say, you're only as sick as your secrets. And that secret just kept, it just kept pulling out the worst in me. And I, again, was that person that I didn't even recognize. Eventually, I, I remember on the morning of January 18th, 2014, it was about 1130 in the morning. And I don't know what had happened, but I definitely wasn't drunk. 
but I had already started drinking one of those little mini bottles and I had about a quarter of that and my husband caught me and he looked at me with the sweetest, saddest eyes and he asked, what are you doing, Maria? And I said, I need help. And it was those three magic words, I need help, that suddenly, like something flushed over me. And for me, I'm going to call it, it the Holy Spirit. It was God. It was something bigger than I was that came over me, poured over me. And like, I just knew it was over. I knew that the fight was going to be over. And, and it made me, it put me in a position that I was ready now to fight for my sobriety. And we went, um, we called, we called all kinds of treatment centers because now I was ready and I couldn't get, um, to Hazelden for another eight days. And, um, eventually that's where I went as I, I went to Hazelden and, and I loved it. And I, I felt, I just felt different. So I came home and I started my program. I went to AA and it was what was funny about suddenly being willing was that all the stuff that I had heard in AA in the time that I had been going that didn't make sense to me. And I always say that even like the big book just read to me like it was Chinese. Well, suddenly it was clear. Suddenly I understood it. And suddenly there was a clarity about the words in there that I was, my, my brain was finally getting. And I was so willing to do whatever it took to continue this, this recovery. So I got a sponsor. I worked the steps. I, to this day, I go to a meeting almost every single day of my life. I sponsor a lot of women. Um, my life is just so much better without alcohol. But what I realized is that it takes work, you know, just me walking into a room or walking into a rehab and hoping that I was magically going to be, I was going to find sobriety. That was not going to happen. There was work involved with it. I had to admit to myself that I had a a problem. I had to, um, to, to ask for help. I, I had to work with others. And, you know, one of the things that I truly, truly love about my 12-step program is the fact that when I work with other women or when I talk to another alcoholic, they are helping me to stay sober. Even though they think that they might have nothing to offer because maybe they're only an, an hour sober, maybe they're day, a day sober, it doesn't matter. When I am speaking to another alcoholic, we are speaking this language of the heart together and we are helping each other stay sober. And whether or not they do, that's not, I I can't take responsibility when somebody relapses, but I also can't take credit for their sobriety. All I can do is continue working my program and learning and growing and helping other people, going to my meetings, working with my sponsor. 
And as I'm saying it, it sounds like a lot of work, but the more I do all of that, the better my life gets, the more I am happy, joyous, and free, the more that the promises that are in our big book come true. Like I have my life back. I love myself again. And I didn't love myself when I was drinking. I, I had forgotten completely about this once happy Maria that I knew before I started drinking, but she came back. And I think the gift, the gift from God in that is that he gave me my sobriety, but he's also given me this gift of being able to share how I got sober with other people. And now I, I, I post about it. I, I write a blog called Sober Blessings, and I have a Facebook page and an Instagram, and I get so many beautiful messages all the time, and I, I hear about people that are struggling, and again, I can't fix them. I can't do the work for them, but I can tell them my story. I can share my journey with them, and I can give them experience, strength, and hope, and hope is something that we all need, no matter what our struggles. So that's kind of where I am today. I, I wake up every morning and I thank God for my sobriety. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm even a grateful alcoholic, which is a term that used to baffle me. But now that I feel it, I can say it with all of my heart. What does it mean to you to be a grateful alcoholic? How do you define that now? You know, being a grateful alcoholic is is not having to live in the shame and the burden of my past. I've cleared up that wreckage by working the steps. Um, what I didn't understand about AA and the reason, one of the reasons that I fought it so hard. Like I was not going to go to meetings. I was not going to get a sponsor. I was not going to work those stupid steps. And I definitely was not going to tell anybody my innermost, deepest, darkest, ugliest secrets. And once, once I started working the steps and once I had my sponsor who I still work with, who is such a loving, kind woman, showing me that, you know, maybe I've made mistakes. Yeah, but we all have. And we don't have to live in those, those mistakes for the rest of our lives. We don't have to be burdened with that. You know, we can, we can recognize our mistakes. We can figure out why we made them in the first place. We can make our amends to the people that we've hurt. And, you know, maybe those people accept our amends or not. That's up to de up to them. That's that's on them. But for me, keeping my side of the street clean, um, there's a real there's a real um, oh, I can't think of what the word is. It, it's just a grace that comes with that. And so when I can wake up every morning and go to bed at night knowing that I can sleep with a clear conscience and that 
Um, even now I make my amends. If I hurt somebody in my family or if I speak in an ugly tone or I say something that I shouldn't, I really try hard to make my amends right away so that I can wake up the next day and I can be grateful. And so being grateful is, is because I've learned a new way of living. You just sound like the sweetest, happiest person. Is that how you saw yourself before you developed a problematic relationship with alcohol? Or has has your joyous self emerged <laughs> even brighter in recovery? Well, I just love you for saying that. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know what? My I grew up in a family with five kids. And of course, with five kids, you've got all the different personalities. And I was smack in the middle of the five of us. And to this day, my mom says that I am the happy one. I'm the one that um, I've always had a, a gentle disposition and I usually don't get down, which is why when alcohol became so prominent in my life and I that old me disappeared. Like, where did she go? Everybody was wondering. My, my family was so concerned because this, the old happy, um, outgoing personality, Maria had somewhere just disappeared. Mm. And that's, that's what alcohol does. Alcohol takes away the real us and disguises us in this ugly person. I mean, I don't, you've heard it before. Alcoholics are not bad people. Alcoholics are, are good people trying to get well. And I believe that behind every sick and still drinking alcoholic is a really good person just trying to get well. Mm-hmm. And just trying to cope too. Um, and it's the coping that is confusing. So what, what did you learn about your drinking, Maria? Like, was it, I mean, it sounds like you may have had a biological genetic, perhaps predisposition towards addiction, but was there something more that you were numbing or soothing or coping with? You mentioned loneliness. Um, were there resentments there that were quietly stewing that you weren't acknowledging or what was underneath it all? What did you learn about yourself? I think there were so many things. Um, one of them is this mommy wine culture that we've been living in for a while. I didn't recognize that I had a problem for a long time because um, I, I thought this is how mommies drink now. You know, you, you hear about the sippy cups with, you know, the funny little slogan on there, you know, um, you know, about mommy's, mommy's juice and I whine because my kids whine and, and this and that. And, um, when I was at the cottage with my kids, I was so isolated and I didn't realize how lonely I was on during the weekdays, especially, um, and at the same time, my dad was very, very sick and I, he, he passed away one, almost a year to the day 
of me finding sobriety. So my one year sobriety birthday was almost to the day of his death. And it was really hard for me to deal with him being sick. And so I drank it away. And again, combined with loneliness, I drank it away. Um, That combined with my friends on the lake that were drinking. And I thought that they were doing it and they looked pretty awesome and healthy. So I did it too. But I don't know how much of a genetic disposition I have. My parents didn't drink at all. I'm you know, my mom is, is still with us and she has a, a drink every once in a while. And my siblings don't drink alcoholically. Um, I, I don't know, at some point it was just like this ugly giant storm of things happening in my life that I didn't know how to deal with, so I drank over them. And the more that I would see people drinking or, you know, whether it was on TV or social media or just at the lake or whatever it was, the more I thought it was acceptable. And then, Mm -hmm. and here's the other thing. I kind of think that there's two different types of alcoholics. I think that there's the ones that are genetically disposed, but I also feel like they're the ones that grow into their addiction. And I think that was me. I, I think that the, the alcohol kind of created the alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe some scientists will tell me that I'm completely crazy, but that's, that's how I feel about it. It makes sense, though, because it's an addictive substance, right? I mean, right. if you took up smoking, no one would be surprised when you got addicted to cigarettes because it's addictive. Right, right. <laughs> and I don't know what is wrong with us that we all know that alcohol is addictive, but somehow we all are surprised that anyone gets addicted to it. So, I mean, of course, it makes perfect sense that prolonged repeat exposure develops addiction. Right. That just makes sense. And and I think it's why, you know, some people in a family, even if we have that genetic predisposition, some people are never exposed or don't reach for that coping mechanism. And and some of us do. And right. um, and there and it just takes off from there. I'm curious about um you you talked about, you know, as your family was finding bottles in your closet and and confronting you. What was your inner dialogue during that time? Did you did your addiction talk to you in a voice that you could hear or were you completely baffled that everyone else was so wrong or like what what did your inner dialogue sound like to you? That's such a funny question, Jean, because in preparation for this conversation, I, I wrote some notes and in great big letters, I wrote down victim, blame everybody else. Uh-huh. And that's who I had become. I, I think I mentioned it, you know, like the more that they would tell me, Hey, I think you might have a problem to eventually saying you are an alcoholic. The more I felt like I had to drink at them. And I'm so angry at you. And I don't know how to deal with these feelings that I have. And in fact, I don't even know any other alcoholics to be able to call and say, Hey, I think I'm drinking too much. Can you help me out? I didn't have that. So instead I bottled up those feelings and I stirred them around until they just exploded. And instead of taking responsibility for myself, 
it was easier for the old me to just blame everybody else. And then I was like the perfect victim. Right. And isn't that just so sneaky how our brain that just wants the alcohol to keep coming because it's conditioned, right? And it'll just pull out all the stops to convince us that it's necessary and those thoughts are true and right and justified. Right. It's, it's cunning and baffling, just like our, like my big book tells me. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful. That word powerful really strikes me, too, because, again, um, sometimes I, I guess it didn't really come out of total left field, but it, I do feel like alcoholism snuck up on me. Mm-hmm. There's a, I think it was Robin Williams, but it might've been, might've been Anne Lamont. I don't know. Somebody funny that sober, uh, (laughs) talked about lowering their standards and keeping with their behavior. Can you think of times when you might've done that? You know, some people say, well, I'll never drink alone. And then they drink alone. Well, I'll never drink. uh, I'll never wet the bed. And then they wet the bed, you know, and it just, you just keep like lowering the bar for yourself. Could you think of times where that might've happened for you? Okay, well, I'm happy to say I didn't wet the bed. <laughs> but it's common, though. Our oh. listeners, our listeners, uh, it's common. It definitely happens to people. You know what? But that's not to say there weren't other, you know, lots of other embarrassing things. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you, one thing that always strikes me is the most hurtful thing. Not, no, I shouldn't even say that. It wasn't even the most hurtful. But one thing that stands out to me is the day that my son, who my youngest, who was about 11 at the time, was leaving for school. And my husband had taken away my keys at this point. He was getting my friends to drive the kids to school and lying to them, you know, saying, Maria doesn't feel well. Can you take them? And Because he, I, I wouldn't allow anybody to know what was really happening. But my son put his precious little face in mine and he said, mom, please don't drink today. And it killed me. But you would think, right, that that would be enough. You think that your child's sweet, precious face in yours begging you to not drink today would make you not drink, but it didn't. I mean, like I, I was, I was, I'm thinking about Elizabeth Vargas who from 2020, I think, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I I loved her book. I think it's um, Between, Between Breaths. Breaths. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the first like quitlet book that I, that I read. And she says something about, I, I could love my children more than life, but I couldn't stop drinking for them. It was something like that. And boy, I really related to that. I, I didn't want to hurt my family. I didn't want to hurt my kids. I didn't want to scare them. And, and I remember when I made my amends to my middle son, who's very quiet. Um, he, you know, he's one of those kids that he doesn't say a lot, but when he does, everybody kind of listens. And I made my amends to him and he looked at me and just said, mom, you just had me so worried. That was all. That was all that he said. He didn't want to go into it any further. He didn't want to dwell on the past. He just wanted to know that he was worried. 
you know, I, I hate that I did that, which is, which is kind of another reason that I willingly come on podcasts like this now, and that I willingly write about my journey. And I just get such joy in sharing my story and hoping that maybe just one person will hear it and relate to it and know that they're not alone and know that there's a solution and that they don't have to live like this anymore, that they don't have to live alcoholically, that they don't need alcohol to be a mother. You don't need alcohol to get through COVID. We don't need alcohol for all the craziness that's going on in our life. Um, there are ways that you can live happy, joyous, and free that don't include alcohol to blur it. What do you use now to comfort yourself or to cope with difficult feelings? What are your go-to replacements for alcohol? You know, I am, I'm so grateful to have this tribe of women, some that I know <laughs> through, through my program, my sponsor, especially the women that I sponsor, and then the ones that I don't know, the ones that are just faces on my social media page or the ones that email me. Um, I'm, I, I'm so grateful that I have other women that I can talk to now because, like I said, I... I didn't know anybody that was an alcoholic when I was struggling. So I didn't know where to turn. And I still had this vision in my head that you are an alcoholic. And if you lived under a bridge with a brown paper bag and you, um, you, you know, you, you were a bad person. You were, I, I didn't have any legal, legal issues. I, di I didn't have any DUIs or anything. But now, now I know I have a program. I have women that I can talk to. My, my husband, God bless him, went to Al-Anon before I ever walked in the doors of AA. Um, my addiction and more so my recovery are such a part of my daily family life that it's an open subject in my family. So when my head starts getting crazy, I have language to say, hold on, I need a breather. Let, I, I, need to, I need to step back. I need to go work out. I need to go take a walk. I need to light a candle. Whatever it is I need to do, my family allows me to do it because they know that I've learned how to take care of myself now. They know that I'm not going to turn to alcohol today. Now, you know, that's another thing too. My family also knows that I can only promise them one day at a time. I can't, I can't give them the gift of saying that at my kid's wedding or, you know, a grandchild someday coming or whatever the situation might be that I, I'll be sober then. I don't know. But I know right now I'm sober. I know right now I'm doing what I'm supposed to. And I know that if I continue walking this path, then I can keep adding up 
all of these one day at a times and each one of those adds up to just a life of of happiness i sometimes wonder how things sound to other people so when you talk about that awareness and understanding that you and your family have that recovery is one day at a time literally that it's for today and you can't necessarily promise tomorrow and I always wonder if to someone who's not familiar with that idea it sounds like you're leaving the door open to yourself Mm -hmm. to relapse or that you're accepting of a future relapse but I want to make clear that what you're saying if I'm understanding you correctly, is that it's your heart's desire to be sober forever. Um, But you can't guarantee, like you just keep your, um, it's like if you're driving at night and you keep your view within the headlights, you're not trying to look down the road in the darkness. You're just seeing where your headlights are and your headlights are on today. Is that, am I capturing how you mean that? Absolutely. Yeah. It definitely doesn't mean that I'm trying to leave the door open for a relapse. It's just, you know what? It's almost like me saying to my family, one day at a time, I promise that I will give you one day at a time. That's my promise. That's my gift. And, you know, alcoholics, we, not all of us, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but a lot of alcoholics, um, you know, it's that go big or go home mentality (laughs) that we have. And forever is just too big for me. It's just too big. And whether I'm drinking or shopping or eating, whatever it is, um, I need to tackle what I can tackle. And if I have to tackle something that's too big, I know myself and I'm going to run away from it. And so it's, it's healthier for me to just look at life in these little pieces of time, little sober pieces of time. I love it. The way you explain that, just, just take a little bit then tomorrow get up and do the same thing again. And it all adds up. (laughs) Well, and I, I think too, especially for somebody brand new to sobriety, if I tell them or, or suggest to them that you have to do this forever. It's just too big. How can somebody who is, who is suffering and struggling to not pick up a drink right now, maybe it's in their hand and they're ready to drink it. And and how can I tell them, you know, don't drink that ever again when it's right there. I can't do that, but I can tell you, okay, take a deep breath breathe through this, love yourself a little bit and know that just maybe it's a moment at a time. Maybe it's a tear at a time, Mm. just whatever it's going to take to, and keep adding up those little pieces of time. And before you know it, you're six and a half years sober, which is such an incredible miracle is that's, that's the only way I can describe it is it's just a miracle. You went to treatment uh, once, um, the the second time that you went, 
and you were really ready and, you know, you really dug in. Can you compare that for me, what the two experiences were like for you? Did they feel different? Did they, um, did it feel the same, but with different results? Like, how do you compare those two things when you went into it the second time from such a different place? I I think the biggest thing is that the first time I went, I was so full of resentments. I was such the victim. I was so sure that my drinking, you know, like you would drink too, if fill in the blank is how I felt. I felt very justified in my drinking. And so when I went to treatment the first time, I almost saw it as an escape from my family that like, this is great. They're not going to be on my case. They're not going to be telling me I'm an alcoholic. They're not going to be angry at me. I'm not going to be uncomfortable at home. Um, and I, I, I went there and I, I told those counselors whatever they needed to hear just so I could go home in 28 days, but I really wasn't learning. And you know what? I, I just wasn't ready. Um, I hadn't hit my rock bottom yet. And I, I just believe that you've got to hit some sort of a rock bottom. And it doesn't mean that it has to be the worst. You don't have to have a DUI or hurt, you know, hurt another person physically or lose your job or your family, whatever, whatever your rock bottom is, whatever is the worst thing that you could lose is what needs to happen for you to be able to struggle and to fight for your breath of sobriety. You know, I remember Glennon Doyle Melton, um, who I love, um, in one of her very first books, she was, she was actually, actually she was talking to Oprah and she says in her sweet little Glennon voice, you know, Oh, rock bottom is the best place to be. And I (laughs) thought, what are you talking about? And I was still struggling. So I heard that and I was just furious with her. (laughs) I thought, how can you say that? And then she went on and explained rock bottom is the best place to be because you have nowhere else to go, but up from there. And that changed everything. Do you feel like it's essential to hit a rock bottom? We we seem to, it comes up a lot on this show. My personal revelation was that I was drinking, waiting for rock bottom to come to me. And it was kind of a revelation when I realized, you know, I can just quit. Mm -hmm. I can stop dreading all of these terrible things ahead of me and I can just quit. But the downside of that is that it's harder to be motivated. You have to work harder to stay motivated when you're not pushing off against a really low bottom. Yeah, I hear that. I hear what you're saying. I, you know, I guess you're right. I, I, people probably don't have to hit a rock bottom. I think they have to reach some level of rock bottom though. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe you're not all the way down to the bottom floor. In fact, I've heard it talked about as like an elevator, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, um, you, you don't have to go all the way down to the basement. You, you just have to know you're on your way down, right? Yeah. <laughs> I can't stop this thing. Exactly. It's less enough that 
my goodness, you don't have to hit a rock bottom where, um, you know, if you're blessed that you don't have to hit a rock bottom and you can still find sobriety. Wow. That's what a, what a lucky person you are. Um, I asked you. Yeah. yeah. One thing I did experience myself and I'm curious if you felt this or felt it in some form or other, is that while I didn't have a really low bottom experience, what I had was a profound awareness that this would kill me if I continued. Mm -hmm. And I really realized I was playing not just with my health, but with my life. Did you have any sort of mortality confrontation or health, you know, awareness? How did that hit you? I, I didn't have any health issues because I was too afraid to go to the doctor. So I just, I avoided the doctors at all costs because I knew that they would want to take my blood pressure and that it was probably elevated and, um, you know, heck, they might want to do blood work and then they're really going to find out what's going on. And I wasn't ready to, to expose myself. Yeah. So I, I didn't have any health issues, but I didn't feel well. I felt slower and certainly the hangovers weren't helping. And there were times where I felt like my heart was kind of palpitating a little bit too quickly. Um, And it, it was scary for me. I remember that I started dreading going to the grocery store and using my credit card because I didn't want to have to sign my own name on the receipt because my hands were shaking. And that was pretty scary to me. When we're talking about shaking hands, it makes me think about um, withdrawal. Can you talk about how that felt for you? Did you feel the physical effects of withdrawal uh, during the times that you quit? And did you do anything to medicate that or combat that? How did that feel for you? You know, I... I was drinking a lot, but I, I don't think I was like, I wasn't drinking three and four bottles of wine a day or what I, I was like a one bottle a day, which is still pretty horrific to me. Uh Uh But you know, the with withdrawals, in fact, I couldn't get to Minnesota for treatment they didn't have a bed open for me until eight days after I said to my husband, I need help. And so I kind of did that withdrawing stage at home, um, by myself and, you know, just kind of sitting on my hands and biting my nails and doing whatever I had to do to not pick up that drink, go to meetings. I was calling people, but, um, that's a, that's such a scary feeling. That's such a scary out of control feeling. And I, I see, I follow a lot of Facebook groups for sobriety and I read about it a lot of, you know, people that are going through the withdrawals and, and yet it, it, it makes sense to me. I understand when they relapse because those withdrawals can be so bad. And the thing that makes you feel better is an al- is is alcohol. I think it's very very dangerous um, to do it 
without medical detox because I've heard of people who have gone, who died of seizures because they tried to do it on their own. Um, you know, you can't just, you can't just cold turkey um, alcohol. Not always. Of, of course, I, I'm, I guess I'm saying like for somebody who is extremely sick, um, to go cold turkey is just really, really dangerous. Yeah, I think we, we've talked about this on previous episodes way in the past, but it hasn't come up for a while. And that is that the only two withdrawals that can actually be fatal are alcohol and benzodiazepines. And, mm. and that is either, as you said, from seizures, or I believe it's also um, a blood pressure thing that yeah. uh, that your blood pressure can can drop or spike suddenly and can cause serious problems. Um, And that's funny, you know, because we think about um, with the opioid crisis right now, I mean, opioid is a terribly uncomfortable withdrawal process. And the reason that it's fatal isn't from withdrawing. It's because if you come off of it and then go back out and use at the same level that you were before, uh, then people overdose and because um, mm-hmm. their tolerance has gone. So we tend to think of harder drugs as being the more deadly, um, but the withdrawal itself isn't the deadliness. It's the, it is for alcohol and for benzodiazepine. So I, I found that really interesting and um, uh, to just to learn that. So for people that are listening that are, you know, thinking about quitting or planning to quit, make sure you take some precautions or at least know what the risks are when you're quitting alcohol, because, um, I mean, you do need to quit. You can't just keep drinking because (laughs) you're worried about withdrawals, but you do. I I know that there's, there's people out there that, um, are going to disagree with me, but, you know, there are also drugs out there that are incredibly helpful to to help somebody find sobriety. I personally, I used naltrexone for a little bit, and it was like the miracle drug. I could okay, talk believe... about that. Tell me what that is. Okay, so now, oh, I wasn't prepared for this one. So now, <laughs> all I know is that naltrexone was a drug that I took, and it was a prescription from my doctor. And it just turned off those little receptors in my brain that said I needed alcohol. It just, I can't explain it other than to say it just turned those, turned that craving off. Um, it's been so long since I've taken it that I don't even remember a whole lot about any of side effects or symptoms or anything from it. So I guess I feel like I can't speak to it a whole lot. But I, I just believe that there, there are prescriptions out there. Um, you know, you got to do what you got to do to save your own life. And, yeah. you know, if it, you know, I, I, I hear people even questioning like anti-anxiety medicine. You know what? You got to do what you got to do to save your own life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, uh, so with naltrexone, then, did you feel like it kind of gave you the space to really kind of then get your tools in place? So it's not like you can't just take it forever mm-hmm. and not be a drinker anymore. But it kind of 
gives you a little bit of space to start getting your feet under you and to start building a solid base for recovery? Is that how you see that as working? Well, and here's the thing. I was taking the naltrexone and I really only took it, I think for like three months. I didn't take it for very long, but I was also really ready to find recovery. I was going to meetings you know, one and two a day at least. And I was working with a sponsor. I was really doing the deal. I was doing the work that I felt needed to be done um, in order to not need the naltrexone. And, and I just found like, you know, a lot of, a lot of alcoholics drink because of resentment and fears and shame and anxiety. And I just found that when I worked the steps and I started really taking a very close look at my, at myself, at my faults, at my past, at my shame, at whatever it was I was living with, everything just kind of came to the front and I was ready to tackle it. And the harder I worked, the easier it got, if that makes any sense at all. Oh, yeah. It definitely does. Last question before I let you go. Someone posted today in one of my online groups that they were seriously considering rehab and felt it was probably what they were going to need to do in order to find recovery. And they asked if anyone could share their experience with rehab and give them, you know, any um, advice or insight on whether or not they should go to rehab. So I'm curious what your answer would be to that question. Well, the first time I went, I, again, I was such a victim that, you know, it was everybody else's fault and I didn't go there um, with any expectations of getting sober. I just went there because I wanted my family off my back. (laughs) Um, the second time that I went, I went because I wanted to save my own life and I wanted to find me again. And I think that that's the only way that you can do rehab. I think if, if you're going to go to treatment, you've got to really be ready. And it's, I, I met such incredible people at treatment, um, you know, and, and the funny thing is the first time that I went, I call it Camp Fruit Loop, but I still have friends that I keep in touch with that are that are still sober from when we went there. Um, they stayed sober and I didn't. You know, everybody's got their own journey and it doesn't matter what yours looks like and somebody else's as long as you you follow your heart and by the time that I got to treatment the second time, I don't know what happened. I, I don't know. I just had this like spiritual experience like that I just really did feel like my struggle was over and that I was going to be ready to start putting the pieces of my life back together. And when I got there, um, gosh, I loved it. I loved being in Minnesota in January and it was 25 degrees below zero and I loved it. <laughs> I loved the people that I met there. Um, 
And I just think it's, it's a really powerful gift that you give to yourself. If you go into treatment thinking that this is a punishment, like I did the first time, then it's probably not going to click. But if you go in realizing what an incredible gift you have been given, then you're probably going to be successful. Hmm. Maria, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been nice. I, I love your show. And, and I have to tell you, I was, was listening to Lucy Hall yesterday. What? She's amazing. She is amazing. Oh, my gosh. So congratulations on your new book. Congratulations on this podcast and, and what you're doing for, for people who are, who are trying to get sober and for people who are trying to continue to be sober. Um, what a gift you are. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. And listeners, if you have a message for Maria or if you'd like to thank her for something she said that might have touched your heart or share your thoughts on this interview, you can send them to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I'll make sure that Maria gets them. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care. Own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame. Strong just cause you keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see old I did that Not proud but that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free Just want to be free